This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, journalist Donald McNeil speaks about what he's learned from covering pandemics for 25 years for The New York Times. He's interviewed by Science Magazine senior correspondent John Cohen. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. If you read nonfiction books and thought-provoking discussions with authors spark your interest, you'll find the Book TV newsletter a valuable learning resource for staying informed. Hi, John here, one of the producers at Book TV. Think of the Book TV newsletter as your weekly literary update, your source for advance notice of program highlights, featured book festivals, and in-depth profiles of nonfiction authors. Explore the Book TV newsletter to organize your viewing and ensure you never miss a significant literary event. Be a Book TV insider with our weekly newsletter because Book TV is television for serious readers like you. Subscribe today at cspan.org/connect. That's cspan.org/connect. Donald G. McNeil Jr., uh, good to speak with you again. Nice to see you, John S. Cohen. Uh, so, I want to start with a very general question. Why did you title it The Wisdom of Plagues? I didn't. I had an idea that, like, you know, it's going to happen again, or, you know, they keep on coming, or something like that. But the head of Simon & Schuster said, my appeal when I was covering COVID for the Times and appearing on the Daily was that I was this wise old Uncle Mortimer, the epidemiologist, who was reassuring people that they weren't all going to die. And so he wanted the name Wisdom in there. So we smooshed together Wisdom and Plagues, and there you go. So it strikes me that the book is part memoir, part journalism, and as you say yourself, part sermon. Yeah. Um, the, the memoir side of it, uh, you wrote, what uh, saves the most lives? This book, I hope, will be a hard look at some answers. And you became interested and in, started doing science writing because of HIV AIDS in South Africa, right? Correct, yes. What year was that and what were you doing then? Uh, it started in 1997. Uh, I, I was a regular foreign correspondent in South Africa. Um, there wasn't actually, it wasn't obvious how many people were going to die in South Africa at the time because the virus came a little later to South Africa than it did to the rest of Africa because of the, the boycotts and the semi-closed borders that took place because of apartheid. But, but what really drew me into it was I was asked, there was somebody at the consulate who was outraged about a bill, the U.S. consulate, about a bill that the South African parliament was about to pass that would allow uh, the government to import drugs from anywhere where they would be cheaper and cancel any patents. And at first, I thought this sounded kind of outrageous, but the more reporting I did, the more I realized, you know, this is what all governments do, including the United States government, and the South Africans were just trying to lower the prices of drugs. And the first reporting I did was in a, was in a, a baby sanctuary, a, 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 a orphanage, um, and, and, and the class I was visiting was the AIDS orphans, all of whom were going to die, and, and there, was no, there was no medicine for them. There was no medicine for anybody in South Africa. And that story is what got me interested in, in the whole beat. And then I'm curious what led you to broaden out to other diseases. I remember a series you did, a terrific series about eradicating disease. Uh, was that what broadened your interest beyond HIV-AIDS? Well. What happened was after seven years overseas, my wife and I came, as both of us were reporters, we came back to New York and kind of abruptly, and there was no plan for what to do with me. And the editor-in-chief first asked if I wanted to go back to culture reporting, which is what I'd done before I was a foreign correspondent. 
And I said, no, I didn't want to cover Broadway again. It seemed like it was like a scene out of a past life that I'd sort of forgotten. So he said, you want to be a science reporter? I thought that sounded like a challenge. So I, he sent me to the science editor. She said, I need a health writer. I said, well, you've got two doctors on your staff covering, you know, cancer and heart disease and the things Americans die of, and they're better than me. How about I cover essentially third world disease, it was called then, you know, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, worm diseases, mosquito-borne diseases and stuff. And she originally said, we don't do that, and then decided to make it an experiment, and that's how I got started. And, and that... And then I realized a couple of years later how many diseases were sort of hovering on the brink of eradication but couldn't quite get eradicated the way smallpox was. And I decided let's do a series on why each one of these diseases can't be quite pushed over the edge into eradication. So we did everything from measles to guinea worms. I, I worked on this with uh, Celia Duggar. Um, yeah. and, and, and we did measles, guinea worm, trachoma, um, and a bunch of other diseases that were all sort of hovering but couldn't quite be eradicated. So you wrote uh, in the book that you hadn't wished for it, but COVID made you useful, which was exhilarating. And I, I had the same sense covering COVID that I felt more useful than ever before. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I, most of the time, a lot of the diseases we cover are pretty obscure and they're happening to dark-skinned people in faraway countries and not a lot of Americans care. So I often would write something about malaria or something in a, in a small village in Africa and I'd find out I had 35,000 readers because you can read the Times software and find out how many readers you have. And suddenly you're covering a disease that Americans are threatened about. And the first story I did about, about uh, COVID saying it was going to be a pandemic had 7 million readers. And suddenly everybody cares about what you're doing and you feel like, hey, I you know, I've trained for 25 years. I know how pandemics unfold. I know what's likely to happen. There's going to be a round of disbelief, and then there's going to be a round of fatalism, and then there's going to be a round of rejectionism and rumors that people don't believe it. And then there's going to be profiteers who are trying to make money off the disease. And, and sure enough, all these things happened with COVID. And, you know, you and I have seen all those things happen with AIDS. We've seen them happen with, with malaria and other diseases. There's this whole weird cycle of responses to the to, to a pandemic that it kind of repeats itself the same every time but different every time and and so you can you feel useful and and also people look to you for advice and it becomes I think you become comforting and and so yeah I ended up feeling useful I live in wildfire fire territory in California and whenever we have these wildfires we glue ourselves to media and I had that same sense that this was a wildfire and people were gluing themselves to us. Yeah, you're right. I, it, it was like that. I, I, you know, I mean, CNN did nonstop pandemic coverage for months and months and months, and now it never gets mentioned. Um, it was, you know, it was the story of the moment for, and, and really for more than a year here. One of the fun things in your book is you take the gloves off. Um, you, you wrote, I know I'll provoke anger. I don't care. I'm not trying to please anyone. I was never very interested in that anyway. And now in retirement, I'm even less so. And you wrote, craving to be liked in many ways is antithetical to the ability to be a good public health leader. And the same could be said of journalists. How did it feel to take the gloves off and not be constrained by working for the New York Times and having to be balanced at every turn and have a measured tone? It, it's an enormous relief. I, I mean, it's also an enormous <laughs> relief 
not to be working for an editor every day, especially an editor whose you know, instinct is, oh, God, we can't let him say that, or, or oh, God, you know, are you sure that's true? Well, of course, I'm sure it's true, but, I mean, you know, there were all sorts of times I would be sort of pulled back from the brink. And so, yeah, to be able to say how I really feel, um, I mean, I, look, I'm not stylizing myself as a public health leader here. That, that, those are sort of two separate sets of, I, I, I mean, yes, I feel better that I'm unfettered and I'm allowed to state my opinions and, and tell all the memoirs from my own life and what went on behind the scenes at the Times and stuff like that that shows how frustrated I could get trying to tell what I thought was the truth and being held back by editors. But it's a separate argument to say, look, I think public health leaders need to be tougher. They need to be sort of like they were a uh, hundred years ago when you had one deadly pandemic after another. I mean, public health leaders now have all gone to medical school in the United States and they've all learned to have these, these sort of warm, friendly bedside manners. But when you're a public health leader, you sometimes have to order people into quarantine. You have to find a way to get people to vaccinate. And you can't always do it by convincing them because there's going to be a number of people who just reject it and refuse. And if, they, if they're allowed to refuse, they will keep passing the disease on to their families, to their friends, to their kids, to their grandparents, to their church mates, to their poker buddies and everybody else, and, and the pandemic will continue. And that's, I find that dangerous, and I'm arguing that public health leaders need to be tougher, need to say, no, you gotta obey these orders. And the laws have existed on the books for more than a century, it's just that we don't use them. Yeah, and you wrote that there's a sense that we have no obligation to protect each other or even each other's children and parents. Yeah, and I find that horrible. That people don't feel, people act like, you know, I won't do it and you can't make me. And, you know, I've done my own research and I don't want you putting that in my body and I don't care. And, and you know, people who do that go on to infect others and they keep it going. And other people die because of their selfishness. And, you know, you wouldn't tolerate that in war. You wouldn't tolerate a soldier who says, you know, I don't like it here. I'm going home. And the rest of you can feel good luck with the, uh, with the enemy. We you know, we shouldn't tolerate it when we're under attack from a disease, too. Well, part of the sermon of the book is you call for a pentagon for disease, for things like uniforms and ranks in public health officials and for banning religious exemptions and even uh, going so far as to seize the assets or charge doctors with manslaughter if they're pushing snake oil. Um, how realistic do you think it is to have the iron fist? The, and, well, okay, each one of these is is the most extreme example. The whole it's it's what the far right has glommed onto. It, it, it's the notion that I want to be emperor of the world or something, and I'm trying to dictate. I, I, I mean, wanting a Pentagon disease is for pe disease. When I said that, it's mostly I want us to be able to respond to pandemics in as organized a way as we respond to Pearl Harbor or you know, Fort Sumter or something like, you know, to, to, to an invasion, to an act of war. We have a very clear response system and we train our military to respond to acts of war. Shoot missiles at our ships and we'll find a way to shoot, you know, shoot back at the Houthis. We see this all the time. We have this kind of messy state by state, you know, CDC, FDA, HHS. There's no one in charge when we have to respond to diseases. So that was, you know, the, 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 Uniforms, is a, that was just a sort of a, you know, that might even be necessary, might be helpful. We do have people in uniform like the Surgeon General. I, I, I don't want to have to die on the hill of, ex, of 
ex you know, defending the most extreme versions of what I said. Mostly, I want a better, more organized response. But in answer to your question, what am I? What do I think the chances are of this passing? Zero. Zero. I recognize that. Congress, there's no way Congress is going to pass a single thing that I propose. But I'm trying to get people to think about a different way to respond to diseases so that not so many people die. In a way, what I'm trying to do is get into the heads of today's generation of medical students and public health students and say to them, you know, it, it doesn't have to go as badly as it did during COVID. And COVID was a cakewalk of a pandemic compared to some of the other pandemics we faced in the past and those we might face in the future. But you, you point to China and the way that they had forced isolation of infected people. And, and indeed, it was effective. China uh, in 2020, by March, had stopped the spread, which no one thought was possible in the public health world, and they Correct. did it. But I interviewed someone at the time who said, look, you could take infected people out to the public square and shoot them. You'd have the same effect. There is a point at which populations will not put up with what China put up with. And, you know, where do you draw that line in terms of what in America comes down to people uh, being upset about their liberties being taken away and the public good? Where do you draw that line? Certainly, we're not going to shoot people in the public square, but you think it's okay to have forced isolation of people? Well, remember, we did have forced isolation of people in this country, but we didn't do a very good job of it. Um, we did have vaccine passports in New York City, but all we used them for was for getting into restaurants. Uh, we did have uh, vaccine mandates um, for, you know, for hospitals, for corporations for a while. We had them for corporations of more than 100 employees and stuff. Um, I mean, am I going to defend the idea of taking people out to the public square and shooting them? No, of course not. Am I going to defend what China did? What China did was incredibly effective. There's no way that could have happened in this country because we're not China. And I said that the first time I appeared on The Daily. I said, look, they are actually slowing down the disease that is as transmissible as flu, and no one's ever done that before. No one even conceived of being able to do that before. And we, to stop this disease in this country, we would need to do something similar. But I said, I don't think that's ever going to happen because, you know, people are going to rebel. And in China, they finally rebelled after three years, and it was a combination of the Omicron variant was so infectious that you, you know, it was infecting everybody despite shutdowns and isolation policy. But for three years, they managed to hold off the disease and they had a semi-functioning economy. If we'd had a better lockdown, we could have, I think, ended the pandemic a lot sooner and with fewer deaths. We would have had less transmission before the vaccine was invented. And then after the vaccine was invented, if everybody had taken it and had taken the booster, a lot fewer Americans would have died. We wouldn't have had to keep the schools closed as long as we did. We wouldn't have to keep masking as long as we did. It would have become what it's become now, essentially another flu season. It would have just happened sooner. The, I, I want to move away from the absurd idea of shooting people. What China really did was forced people into gymnasiums who were infected. And you wrote about it at the time, and there were photos, I remember, of this that were startling. And I thought, we would never do that in the United States. Do you, are you advocating that we move infected people into things like giant gymnasiums as China did? The reason for moving for those gymnasiums was they recognized that 70 to 80% of all transmission was within families. So they tested people as fast as they could, and as soon as somebody came up positive, they would say, 
we're going to move you away from your family so you don't give this disease to your kids and your husband and your grandmother. And we want you to spend, uh, you know, up to two weeks sleeping in a gymnasium with other people who are suffering. You'll be with other people who've got the same disease you do. If you crash, and, and that second week crash was a, quite a common phenomenon with early COVID. If you crash and suddenly your lungs are filling with fluid and you can't breathe, we will be right there with nurses and oxygen machines and be able to get you on oxygen and hospitalize you. So I actually saw this as a benign and intelligent way of handling the, the disease. I mean, when Chris Cuomo got the disease, what does he do? He goes and he moves into his basement, and nonetheless, from his basement, he manages to transmit the disease to the rest of his family, you know, on CNN. Great. All that did was spread the disease. You know, home quarantine was a disaster in that disease. Home quarantine is, by and large, a disaster in any uh, highly transmissible respiratory disease. So do you think we could do it? <laughs> could, could we isolate people away from their homes in this country? I, I mean, now, after all the polarization that's gone on from this pandemic, no, no way. I mean, people are ready to, people are ready to kill over anything now because, you know, because the, 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 the Trump, Biden, Democrat, Republican, whatever, name the way you think the country is polarized. But had we been better about no home isolation at the beginning of that pandemic when everybody was nervous. I mean, we forget that there was a period back in early 2020 where first there was a lot of skepticism and everybody, you know, no, there's no reason to cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade. No, there's no reason to, um, you know, to cancel the basketball season. But then people got scared. And there was a period of a few months where everyone, including President Trump, was ready to take measures to prevent the spread of the disease. He recognized that as many as 2 million people might have died by October, and that's why he started that thing called 15 Days to Stop the Spread. He endorsed lockdowns originally. But then, when the complaints began to rise, and, and when it didn't all disappear after 15 days, then he changed his tune and started to say, oh, the country's all got to open up again by Memorial Day. And, you know, when the country opened up again by Memorial Day, you got what had been a an epidemic that was largely, you know, terrible in New York, terrible in Northern California and, and Washington, but not spread around the country. You got spread all around the country. You had a big uptick of cases in the South and the other country, the other states that had taken their, uh, gone out of lockdown early. And then you had kind of quiet time in the summer. And then you had the gigantic surge and the big uh, surge of this in that first winter. So in, a, in another time, in an era where we had not experienced a pandemic and had not polarized our country, yeah, I think we could have done better. Your book uh, made me think a lot about this question that has bothered me um, a lot, and that's why the divide occurs in, in the United States and other countries, and why there's so much hand-wringing about wearing masks, not wearing masks, about how far away social distancing should be. And it strikes me that the one side is that's fist in the air, liberty is erring on the side of selfishness. And the other side that wants to save every life is erring on the side of caution. And that, that's the ultimate dilemma, is that you have these two sides that have different values, liberty versus saving every life, and they both make mistakes, but the mistakes on the one hand are about selfishness, and on the other, they're about making pronouncements that are meant to protect people that aren't necessary. What do you, what do you think? I completely agree with that. 
I mean, I, I think, and, and there are chapters in the book about that, about the fetishization of science. I mean, I haven't worn a mask since February of 2022, and I'm on the subways and I'm on airplanes and everything else. And yet there are people I see, you know, I mean, in most of the country where if I go places, the trout fishing, I don't see anybody in a mask for days on end. And I didn't even back in 2000, 2022. But now I see people wearing masks on the subways. I see and people arguing with me about masks. And I go like, there's no point. I personally, I'm back to my pre-2019 attitude about illness, which is that, you know, I'm going to get some colds. I might get the flu. I get my flu shot every year. I get my COVID shot. I do what I can to protect myself, but I'm not going to live in fear. And I do think there are way too many people in New York, particularly in San Francisco, in places like that, where that want to impose their fear on everybody else. And I think that's ridiculous. But I think it's equally ridiculous that people, there are people who just say, you know, I won't do it and you can't make me. Like like me when I was nine years old to my parents. And, and, and you know, and, and they won't do anything to protect themselves. And they think of it as a purely personal decision. And it's not because it's failing to protect others. But I don't necessarily think this, this polarization came out of science. I think this polarization came out of politics. I mean, don't forget, you know, Donald Trump came into office saying that Obamacare, you know, we've got to get rid of Obamacare. Obamacare, you know, under the ACA, might have been one of the great, you know, healthcare advances in this country. It's bringing us a little bit closer to universal healthcare, which every other democracy, you know, enjoys. And, and yet it was a terribly polarizing fight as if people didn't want health insurance, didn't want health care. Um, and, and that kind of, that, that, that Democrat versus Republican, Trump versus Obama era of the pandemic overlaid itself on the pandemic and, and sort of took over for the science. And so now everybody's kind of lined up on one side or the other. You know, vaccine refusal used to be a left-wing thing, not a right-wing thing. It just kind of morphed, you know, from the you know, you can't take away my guns to you can't put this vaccine in my body. Mississippi used to be the most vaccinated state in the country. The southern states were were the ones least likely to have any exemptions to vaccines because they'd seen the effects of no vaccines. They'd seen people die in large numbers. And we don't, you know, we don't want to go back to those days again. You know, I think you put your finger on something that's one of the most absurd things about this divide to me. Donald Trump championed Operation Warp Speed. He did something that both the left and the right celebrated. They raced a vaccine um, through the testing process in a transparent way, um, looking at side effects publicly, discussing efficacy publicly, and it worked. And then instead of Trump embracing that, he backed away from his own great accomplishment that was being celebrated across the political spectrum. He kept it secret for months that he and Melania had been vaccinated in January as soon as they could be. He never, he not only didn't get vaccinated on television the way almost everybody else did, he kept it secret. He finally revealed it because of a question at uh, CCAP, the, you know, the conservative political action uh, um, thing, which I took, think was in late March. And then later, when he came around to endorsing boosters, he got booed by his own supporters. He you know, he got sort of trapped in his own backing away from the vaccine, even though it was a personal and political triumph for him to have done that. We did a much better vaccine than anybody else in the world did. And it was under yeah. his, on his watch. Yeah, I want to uh, clarify something about masks that you mentioned. About what? In, in, in my mind, N95 masks oh. are incredibly effective. And if your risk tolerance is extremely low, or if you have comorbidities and are worried to this day about becoming infected, wear an N95 mask. Uh, 
the des the desire that as you call it hygiene theater if you're wearing a marcus welby surgical mask you're not doing much of anything to protect yourself or others so if you're going to do it do it <laughs> oh I, no i agree for people who are who are immunocompromised you know but what I, but absolutely it makes sense to protect yourself but what i see is people standing on the subway platform, not wearing a mask, but when they get into the car, they pull a mask out of their pocket, they put it on, they sort of look at everybody like, you know, you're a bunch of, you know, infected lepers and you're going to make me sick and now I'm going to, and then they, they take it off so they're getting out. I mean, it's, it's that to me is hygiene theater, but I, I agree with you completely for the small number. Well, you write about somebody yelling at you when you're on the street by yourself away from everyone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that was in the, in the early days when I absolutely was wearing a mask when I was indoors. And, and I was wearing a mask if I was, you know, in close proximity to other people. But people screaming at me on the street, put on a mask, selfish guy, or get a mask, jerk. When I was alone on the sidewalks in April and May of, uh, of, of 2020, it was just, it was irrational. It was this desire to police other people that, you know, you see this in everything, the, the desire to police other people's language and tell you what words you may use and words you may not use. That extended itself into this kind of like, I'm going to be the mask police and, and tell you off for, uh, for not behaving the way I think you should behave. And that, I mean, that to me really hurts the, the, the sensible interventions that did save lives. You know, when they, as you said, they get overused, they get overcautious. You, you, you try to keep things closed down and clamped down when they don't need to be, and you, you lose the support of the people you might have had before. Right, but it's difficult to turn that dial because on the one hand, it is. you're calling for mandates and for strict government intervention on things, and on the other, you're saying, don't overdo it. Yes. And where do you draw that line is the next question. And the answer is we won't know until we get there. I mean, you know, with every disease, you know, it's, it's transmitted in a slightly different way. It's the virus is, is more transmissible, more visible, you know, symptomatic or asymptomatic transmission. Lots of other things come into it. And you always make mistakes in the beginning. Just just the same as in war. You make stupid mistakes. You you lose the first battle of Bill Run Bull Run because you're completely unprepared. And, and uh you know, and you've got an inept officer corps. You, and you have to be honest with people and say, look, we're going to make mistakes. We did, probably didn't need to wash our groceries with bleach. It would have made more sense to have worn a mask than it did to, you know, wear gardening gloves on the, on the subway and avoid touching your face. You know, lots of mistakes get made, and hopefully you get smarter each time. And that's what I'm arguing for is to get smart and impose the things that really will save lives and then lift them when, when they don't save lives. But I can't yeah. tell you now what the where to draw the line, um, you know, when that moment comes. It struck me that the mistake in messaging was not saying, look, we don't know how many feet apart you should be. Six feet seems reasonable. We don't have hard evidence to prove that, but let's go with that to be careful. We don't know whether masks are necessary or not necessary with hard scientific evidence, but it, it's prudent. It makes sense. Let's go with it. But that's not how the messaging was packaged. And I wonder, can officials package things, their messages in a way that are truthful about what they don't know? I, I hope so. I mean, do you remember the early messaging about monkeypox? I mean, uh, you know, mpox now, we, we'd gone through a pandemic, it was all there. And the, and the first advice from the CDC about avoiding mpox said nothing about the fact that it was transmitting largely within a subset of, you know, a highly sexually active subset of gay men, instead said, 
you know, if you go overseas, avoid people with open sores. Well, obviously good advice. Avoid eating rodents and wear a mask. And I read this and thought, what? You know, we, we kind of know this disease is transmitted by anal sex. How does wearing a mask, you know, help that? Unless you're telling us something about the mask that you don't want to say. And this, I, I mean, it, it was absurd advice. And, and then, to its credit, the CDC issued new advice, but it wasn't for another, about another three weeks where they pulled that whole page down and then gave rational advice about, you know, watching out for basically for sex with strangers, which, which was good advice, and watch out for the possibility of transmission by sex toys and things, which I'd never seen the CDC address before. So, yeah, yeah they've got to they've get their messaging together. And, uh, and, and this often happens at the beginning of pandemics. I remember, you know, when Zika came about, there was, I, I called the CDC saying, hey, this terrible thing is happening in Brazil. All these babies are being born with microcephaly. And the disease has clearly spread into the Caribbean. And lots of American women, including women of childbearing age and women who are pregnant, are going on vacation in the Caribbean because it was a week after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. Don't you want to put out some sort of warning? And they were blasé about it in the beginning. And I ended up in a screaming fit on the phone with somebody from the CDC saying, how can you be letting American women go on cruises in the Caribbean or fly to these islands where we know Zika is and not tell pregnant women they shouldn't go? And finally, the CDC did issue some advice about that. So it's, it's tough. And, and you know they're going to make mistakes. But they've got to move faster. And they've got to move smarter. And that's really what the argument of the book is. Move faster, move smarter, save lives. Your, your colleagues gave you a standing ovation in the newsroom for yelling at the CDC. Yeah, I was screaming at the top of my lungs for about five minutes, and then I threw my headset off in disgust. And there, there was this sort of stone silence, and I realized everybody was looking at me. And then John Schwartz, when my buddy started to clap, and then everybody stood up and started clapping. It was silly, but fun. Yeah, but I, I think that for those of us who do this work, you know, I was standing up and clapping too. You know, I've been in that situation so many times. I remember with MPOX, I called the CDC about the first case, which was at Massachusetts General Hospital, yep. and asked whether the healthcare workers had been offered the vaccine. And, and the answer was no. And I was like, what? Seriously. You know, these are people caring for people who have a contagious disease by contact. Right. Why Is not that, offer? Well, now, how many doses of vaccine did they think they had at the time? Well, there was a shortage, but, you know, you know. Do you the remember the, C the CDC press conference where somebody asked that question? How many doses of vaccine are there? And the answer right. they got from the CDC officer was, I'm not sure more than a thousand, I think. I'm thinking, yeah, they, more than a thousand for, say, all the gay men in this country and everybody who might be helping take care of them? And, you know, seriously, you don't know how many doses? And, you know, they didn't. And, and when I called the national stockpile, they refused to tell me because they said that's a biodefense asset and we're not allowed to describe the size of our, our biodefense yeah. supplies. I, I went like, through the same. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you did. You know, you so there's some fun historical facts in the book that, that I didn't know. Um, one was about hookworm and uh, back to the Civil War. T tell us about that. Wait, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, couldn't hear part oh, of that. What about you wrote about hookworm, hookworm in, in the Civil War and rumors that the Rockefeller Foundation was buying up shoe companies. Right. Uh, I, I guess the, the, the fun historical facts in the book about I didn't know this that I didn't know that hookworm 
was a problem at the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're conflating a few ideas here. So, so much of the Confederate Army during part of the war was barefoot, and uh, and and there, there's a rumor that the Battle of Gettysburg was started because the word spread in the Confederate Army that there was a, um, a warehouse full of boots um, in the town of Gettysburg, and they marched there and then blundered into the Union and, and the fight started there. But that's, that was kind of just supporting, I mean, it's not that, not that hookworm was important in the outcome of the Civil War, it's more that hookworm was incredibly prevalent in the American South. And in the 1930s, obviously many decades after the Civil War, John D. Rockefeller uh, put a million dollars into the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission, and one of the first things he decided to fight was hookworm in the American South. But um, the the um, doctor who was in charge of it was from this long line of Methodist ministers from New England that had a way of sort of talking down to people. And what he said to all Southerners is, "You've got to stop defecating outdoors. You've got to dig, you know, outhouses and and build them and only use those. Never never go in the fields again. You've got to take." extract of thymol, which is, a, which is an extract of thyme, the, um, uh, the, the herb, which cleans out your guts and actually does something to, you know, does somewhat knock out the worm. And you also all have to wear shoes. And this is sort of this northern minister dictating to all southerners that they had to wear shoes indoors and out every day. And southerners rebelled against this tone of the, the tone of the voice of this advice and the advice. And the rumor spread that it was only being given because Rockefeller had bought up shoe companies and was secretly trying to increase the sales of shoes in the world. And to me, this was the, the point I was making was this is the parallel to the idea that the vaccine had been produced by Bill Gates and contained microchips um, so right. that you could be tracked everywhere. It's, what I mean is that every pandemic has the myth of the evil billionaire behind the pandemic in it. And, and that was the reason I put that example in the book. Yeah, you, you also, in, in a similar vein, just showing that calling uh, COVID the Wuhan flu that we've always, time and again, his, historically, people have blamed it on your enemies. You you go through a list of what people called uh, the pox, you know, the Napoleon curse, the French pox, the Polish disease, the Spanish itch, the Chinese disease, the Portuguese disease, the right. Persian fire. This was syphilis. This, everybody everybody blamed syphilis on the last people they'd had a war with. It was syphilis, sorry, yeah. yeah. And, and it's just interesting how we keep repeating things. And, you know, so much of what you're writing about is resonant with what's happened in the past, which makes me feel like kind of bleak about the future. You know? yeah. Are we going to break these cycles? Yeah, well, I mean, that was a big part of the book was that we go through these cycles. And one of them is no matter where the disease starts, when it usually comes to a country in some tiny network of people. And that people, you know, the Italians were blamed for the uh, polio outbreak of uh, 1916 in, in New York City. The Chinese were blamed for the third wave of the bubonic plague, um, which came through from China to Hawaii to San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, you know, thousands of Jews were slaughtered during um, the, the Black Death um, because they, you know, Jews were blamed for uh, poisoning the wells. Um, you know, and, and supposedly spreading the, the plague to the Christian neighborhoods. I mean, unfortunately, 
blaming some ethnic group uh, is is an inevitable part of every disease. So when we called it the China virus, you know, that was just following it along standard. But I tried to point out in the book that it's not always the poor and the marginalized who spread the disease, that in fact college students spread one big wave of COVID and alpine skiers who are, you know, as unmarginalized and as white and wealthy as you can get a group in this country were also responsible for spreading a lot of the disease early on. You write that if the first casualty of war is truth, then the first casualty of pandemics is trust. How do we change trust? What's the recipe? I, you know, if I knew that, uh, I'd be, I don't know. I mean, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, was very right when he said, you know, you can surge a lot of things, but trust is the one thing that can't be surged. It has to exist beforehand. And... You know, we have a long uh, history of no trust in this country in the medical system. I mean, obviously, for black Americans and black American men, Tuskegee was the classic example of the government doing an unbelievably untrustworthy, horrible thing. That is letting hundreds of, of black American men, can men linger and die of syphilis so that it could study how syphilis killed you. Um, and that that created great hesitancy to take the vaccine back in the early days, you know, among black men when uh, when it was created. Um, uh, you know, but in, in many countries, you know, we, the average American doesn't trust the healthcare system in one way in this country. The drugs are ridiculously expensive and they're ridiculously expensive because the pharma companies have Congress in their pockets and, you know, nobody can find a way to force the pharma companies to lower them to the prices that they are in, in other countries. So we end up going to Canada or Mexico to buy drugs and, you know, that's semi-legal and the industry battles against it. So it's a problem. I, you know, when, when I was looking at countries that did a good job of getting people to vaccinate, it, it, you know, autocracies were good at forcing the people to vaccinate sometimes, but some autocracies like Russia were not good at getting people to vaccinate. And some democracies were, get, were good at getting the people to vaccinate and some were not. And the thing that seemed to me the common thread was if the people tended to trust their government on health issues, then you got some trust buy-in if the government. Had, so in Cuba, for example, people, you know, Cubans may not have any sort of free speech. They're not able to be political dissidents. They can end up in jail. But by and large, Cubans trust their government on health care issues. Um, Brazil was a place where people used to trust their government on health care issues, where it used to be um, they had a they had a 98 percent vaccination rate for most standard childhood vaccines. But Bolsonaro, the president, you know, started saying that the vaccines would turn you into an alligator or give you AIDS or do some of the other crazy rumors. And that was being reported. And people so ran away from the vaccine that now their vaccination rates for for some diseases are dropping down into the 60 percent limit. So. You can have trust, you can build, it's built up slowly over time, and you can destroy it in a very short amount of time, especially if the distrust is sown from the very top. It strikes me that there's also this fog of pandemics that you and I have run into again and again in the beginning, yeah. where you know there's active disinformation campaigns happening. In this case, China in the beginning wasn't forthcoming about what was happening. They weren't at all transparent about the knowledge that there was human-to-human -human transmission, for example. Um, and now, it's that now some of that I put down to not knowing for sure. I mean, when, when I describe the fog of pandemics like the fog of war, sometimes you just don't know what's going on. You, you're, you, I mean, I'm not sure that they were lying about the amount of human-to-human -human transmission or they just mis 
just miscalculated. I mean, because in the early cases, there weren't apparent connections between the cases, personally. And, and it, was, it was a while before they realized, hey, these cases are getting the doctors sick. So that was sort of the first evidence of human-to-human transmission. In the, yeah, I would they argue thought that. it was like They thought it was like SARS, you know, where there's limited human-to-human transmission, but not very much. Because they yeah, weren't yeah, seeing families, whole families falling ill. Yeah, I, I, I challenge that. I mean, I think okay, on January okay. 20th, they announced human-to-human transmission on January 20th. I think my dog knew at that point. <laughs> okay. All right. It, it was blatantly obvious. Healthcare workers were getting infected. Family members were getting infected. People were posting on, you know, Weibo and WeChat what was happening. Oh, yeah, but I, the doctors had been, there was suppression of the doctors telling the truth. I mean, the, the right. mayor was, had the police threatening the doctors and telling them to shut up. Uh, um, now I've forgotten his name. Lynn, Lynn, Wei Feng, yeah, yeah. Wh- who died, right. was one of the ones who was told stop, stop raising alarm. So yeah, there was absolutely suppression of the truth in China in the beginning. I don't know if that was directed from Beijing, or whether it was directed by the mayor of Wuhan, who, yeah, who I clearly I had had a uh, had a dog in that race. Um, but yeah, there was a cover up ordered in the early days, and we're still finding out there may be you know elements that are covered up. Yeah, but there's a there's a difficulty for journalists in seeing reality when governments are twisting things. And you write about something that happened with you, in, I believe it was in Pakistan, with armed soldiers going out with you. Sorry, wait, wait, I'm I'm confused. I'm I'm shifting gears to something that happened with you about the difficulty of seeing reality when you're a journalist. Okay. And a government is controlling things, and you had uh, local officials made sure that you were observed and you were escorted by jeeps full of, uh, you know, officials with automatic weapons. Oh, you're talking about, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were, I thought you were talking about China now. You're talking about Pakistan. Talking about Pakistan, Pakistan and polio. Yeah, okay. Right. All so right. it's a challenge as a journalist to see reality. When... Absolutely. No, I was being shown a sort of Potemkin village version of the polio vaccination campaign in, in, uh, in, in, in Pakistan that time. They were, they were, you know, I mean, the, I was writing about it because polio workers were being killed while they were going out trying to vaccinate their neighbors. And uh, so I came and asked if I could see polio teams going out and doing vaccine. And yeah, they sent me out in a Jeep full of soldiers with AK-47s. And they said, well, we close off the whole neighborhood and we make sure that, you know, there are soldiers on patrol. But then at the end of the day, when we went back to the to the vaccine distribution point, I could see vaccination teams coming back who had been working in neighborhoods that weren't the ones that I'd been shown. And they were clearly, you know, a team of four women going out with one sergeant who was carrying a club and was, you know, probably 60 years old. And he was, and I said, wait a minute, is this the typical Norman? One guy said, yeah, that's, you know, and I realized I was being shown a, I was being shown a, you know, a cartoon version of what was really happening. So yeah, it's very tough as a journalist to figure out the truth. You know that, I know that. Yeah, and you, you write about this too, and it's something that I try not to ever take for granted. We live in a country where we don't worry about soldiers coming to our door and pointing guns at us for what we say and write. And for much of the world, journalists don't have that freedom. And so you, you write at one point that all too often the world remains unaware that a killer is on the loose until it reaches a country with a free press. Yeah, I, yes, I think- and the example I gave of that was was why the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu when it had already hit 
all the trenches in World War I and could just as easily have been called the German flu or the British flu. And, and the reason it was called the Spanish flu is because military censorship kept down reports of what was happening, that men were dying in the trenches. And it was only when the virus reached Spain that, uh, that, that the reports came out that large numbers of people were dying in Spain. And that's why it got called the Spanish flu, even though it had started, we don't know where, China, Kansas, nobody knows where that flu started. I think there was also something that's underappreciated in China, which how very brave some Chinese uh, media outlets were in the beginning, Keijin in particular, did some spectacular investiga investigative reporting in the early days of the pandemic. And I was just reminded of that with this new story that's making the rounds about when China first had a sequence of the virus, which isn't really news at all, because Keijin reported it in February of 2020. Did it? I didn't know. Yeah, that. It did. yeah, it did. It had two specific instances that it reported with names and details in February of 2020, and now it's a you know big news story in the United States because of I think politics pushing this as news. It's not news. Keijin reported it and very bravely for Chinese journalists. Uh, then it was all shut down. <laughs> I need I, I need to see the Keijin report. I did not know about that. I, I read what was in the Wall Street Journal couple of days ago. And it baffled me because I thought, wait a minute. I mean, the United States, you know, NIH knew that the virus had been posted on GenBank, you know, two weeks earlier and for four years never mentioned it. I mean, the implication is that the, you know, the Trump administration was part of the cover up or something or what? I, 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 I found that sort of too good to be true, and I'm waiting to see. Yeah, it's, where more, it's more nuanced. We could talk offline about okay. it. Okay, okay. It's far more nuanced. So you write the human fact that human factors drive pandemics, and I want to read the list because I think it's a terrific list. I count response time, denialism, fatalism, bigotry, corruption, rumors, media coverage, political opportunism, hygiene theatrics, and profiteering. We've covered uh, many of those points, but I thought that was a terrific recounting of the essential problem of how humans uh, can drive pandemics. You know, how, how much of it is human folly versus oh, yeah. the virus? Yeah, I think the psychology, the crowd psychology and, and the response is in many ways more important than the virus itself. Uh, you know whether people accept it and take and take protective measures, or whether they dismiss it, can can make all the difference between spread or no spread. And one thing we didn't talk about is the fatalism, which I think is an interesting point. Talk talk about that a little. So fatalism, uh, I, the example I gave of fatalism was mostly about AIDS in South Africa. That I was interviewing men in a bar in uh, deep in what's called Zululand, KwaZulu-Natal. And they basically, their attitude was, I might get this disease, I might not. Um, you know, some of the men that I was interviewing were policemen and a policemen were being killed for their guns every day in that part of KwaZulu-Natal. And, and one of them said, you know, I, I do not see the danger of this. You know, Shaka said men must go forward and get something. And, and what he meant was, you know, Shaka, the old the Napoleon of Southern Africa, had said the men must go into battle um, even in those days, the men had to, had to have proven themselves in battle before they were allowed to marry or have kids. And there was this kind of, it's not a death wish, but there was this kind of indifference to a disease that might or might not kill them 10 years ago. And, you know, I, I find that at some point or another in a lot of pandemics, 
a lot of people develop a sort of sense of fatalism. Um, I think in with AIDS in this country, many, you know, even when tests for AIDS became created, a lot of men did not want to get tested because a test was basically a death sentence. If you were positive, you there was no medicine. This was before before AZT, before antiretrovirals. So all you knew was you were infected and you were doomed to die. And so it was easier to not know and just hope that you weren't infected and hope that you weren't passing on the disease to anybody else. And I fear that during that period, which was a few years in the 1980s um, and early 90s, you know, an awful, an awful lot of people got infected because there was this kind of fatal, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so I might as well not know whether I'm infected or not. So it's, you know, this occurs in a lot of diseases, in a lot of epidemics, and in different populations, in different, different cultures, it has different ways of expressing itself. But I think fatalism is a big part of uh, disease. And, you know, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm expressing it now because I don't wear a mask. I mean, I, I do get vaccinated and stuff, but I sort of accept the fact that I might get a flu during flu season. I might get, you know, COVID during this winter, but I'm just, I'm not going to live in fear about everything the, the, the way some people would encourage me to. You also write about this cultural divide and the problem of not embracing the witch doctor. You know, yes. T tell us about that. Okay, so so um, that's just a chapter saying essentially, you know, I mean, the chapter is we've got to embrace witch doctors. But what I mean is traditional healers exist all over the world, um, and I've interviewed them, you know, in you know in Peru, in in South Africa, in uh, Uganda, in um, uh, not Nepal, but anyway, I've interviewed a bunch of traditional healers, and there are many more traditional healers in the rural areas of this world than there are people with MDs or RNs, and they are an important part of the healthcare mindset, let's say, not system, but mindset. And, and many people see traditional healers before they see a doctor or a nurse, or they see them at the same time or in complement with seeing a doctor or a nurse, and by and large, Western medicine, when it begins to make an inroad in the country, just turns its back on the traditional healers and says, oh, my God, they're out of the dark ages, pay no attention to them. And I'm arguing, no, these are very often highly intelligent, respected people in their communities. They know their own people. They know what they normally suffer from. And if you embrace them and, you know, share knowledge with them. You can make them sentinels for outbreaks of disease in the world. You can also, and I've, I, you know, I write about it, a, a, a sort of partnership between a, a doctor in Zulu-speaking uh, South Africa and the number one healer in that part of, of, of Zululand. And he had sort of formed a partnership with her where she would refer her patients. When she began to recognize AIDS symptoms of the patients, she acknowledged that she couldn't cure AIDS. There were many things she could cure. She felt that she would refer those patients to him. And also, when there were patients who were getting antiretrovirals, she would not prescribe them the um, emetics. I mean, the things that would make people throw up or, uh, or or get diarrhea, which was sort of the traditions of, of Zulu medicine, which is purging bad influences of the body from the body by making people throw up and, and have diarrhea, because that would wipe out the antiretrovirals. So that that, uh, that his patients were taking. So I'm arguing that we ought to bring the traditional healers of the world into the system as partners because many more people will have a better surveillance system for outbreaks of disease and many more people will get better treatment that way. Well, Donald, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. This is the book, The Wisdom of Plagues. Thanks so much for taking the time and uh, best of luck. Thank, thank, you, thank you all. Thank you.
Thank you. It's good talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.